The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Thank you guys so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today we have episode 81 with a very special guest, Zach Waldman. Zach, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, sir. It's good to be here. Nice to see you after all this time. Yeah. Friendly face during the quarantine. Zoom's not as good as getting to like, you know, spar with you in person, but. <laughs> it's, it's been a while. I was trying to think back to when we first met. We, we had probably rolled a couple times, but I think the first time I got a chance to really hang out with you, get to meet you was uh, Eddie's podcast. Um, I was going to say that I meant to ask you that you did Eddie Bravo radio, right? And we yeah, talked about yeah. your books and I smoked too much, uh, <laughs> but it was, but it was a fun time. Um, now I, I wanted to talk to you about a couple, a couple different things. One what is, belt are you now, by the way? Uh, purple. Okay. I got to know what I'm dealing with here. So. Yeah. 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 I know it's uh, no I, purple belt. I, come on. That's a, the purple for me, man, that was like, I think the hardest belt for me to get. Well, I mean, I, I haven't gotten my black belt yet, but, um, but I felt like going from purple to Brown was easier than going from blue to purple. You know, I don't know about you, but that was my experience. I, I was really proud of the purple belt. Uh, me too. When, I, when I went to headquarters, dude, I, I had been a blue belt from like eight years prior, but I hadn't trained. And so I threw my blue belt away, went back to white and then got my blue under Eddie. And then, yeah. So when I got my purple, I was like, I, I was proud because I put in the time and um, yeah, that's like probably one of the few accomplishments. Uh, but I am a little bit bummed. Uh, I don't know. We'll see whether or not I ever get my brown. Bro, I, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I didn't want to derail you. started asking something. I didn't mean to derail you. It's just, oh, no. you know, I'm 46. I got my brown belt at 45. And I just, I was like, all right, man, I want to get my black belt before I'm 50. And this COVID has just thrown such a wrench into that. It's like, you know, but so here we are. So I'm with you, man. It's frustrating. So when did you, when did you start training? When did you first find jujitsu? Um, and what has it done for you? And was that with Eddie? Did you start with 10th Planet? Oh, yeah. So I started in 2007. How I discovered it is I moved here. Uh, I'm not originally from Chicago, but I was living in Chicago. I moved from Chicago to L.A. And um, I got very lucky. I had a connection with a friend in a comedy troupe that was doing a thing at the comedy store. And um, comedy store was pretty dead also in 2000. I moved here September 1st of 2000. I live in Santa Monica, and um, the very first place uh, I performed in L.A. was in the belly room of the comedy store, and I knew who Joe Rogan was prior to this because of news radio and because of his affiliation with Sacred Cow Productions. Uh, Kevin Booth was Bill Hicks's best friend, Bill Hicks, my all-time favorite comic, his best friend, Kevin Booth, had produced one of Rogan's early stand-up DVDs, also uh, like produced and distributed early Alex Jones DVDs, uh, like when Alex Jones went to Bohemian Grove. That, that was that company that put that out. Anyway, uh, at that point, I, that was when I learned Rogan was a stand-up. I knew him from news radio, but then when I found out he was a big Bill Hicks fan and that he did stand-up, I saw I bought that DVD. And then, you know, that I, when I bought it, 
it was in Chicago. So here I move out here, my first gigs at the comedy store, and I'm walking from the belly room to the OR, the original room, and there's Rogan on stage. I'm like, damn, that's that, that guy, you know? He, he wasn't the huge star he is now at this point, you know? I mean, he was, a, he was famous, but not like on the level he is now. And uh, so I watched him, he crushed, he was awesome. Uh, I said hi to him. I kept on doing the belly room like once a week, kept seeing him. And uh, he told me about, you know, oh, you should try this jujitsu thing. So I had heard of jujitsu because I was a fan of the original UFCs. Mm -hmm. And I forgot exactly what it was called. I just knew that the grapplers, like the wrestling grappling type guys were the ones in the early days that were dominating. And, um, so I didn't do it right away. That was in 2000 when I first met him. So some years goes, years go by and, uh, I wasn't really, I was always, um, into working out and stuff, but for some reason when I got to LA, which is a super healthy city, I wasn't really working out anymore. I was just gigging all the time and I was doing horrible things to my body. And, uh, you know, I was just, it was all, it was just, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You're new to LA. And so, um, what happened though was, I mean, God, this is, this could be an epic tale, but long story short, I ended up having horrible anxiety. I, uh, was randomly beat up by these two guys, uh, in front of my apartment building. They knocked me out. It's a whole thing. And, uh, I ended up being diagnosed with PTSD and, and I realized I had a, a long history of, uh, trauma, anxiety, and depression, but this getting beaten up was the straw that broke the camel's back for me and uh, sent me into a really bad place. I didn't want to leave my apartment. You know, I'd see a girl walking her dog and I'd be like, what is she crazy? I'm not going out there, you know, and it was real. It was uh, devastating. I didn't even know what was wrong with me. To, to be honest with you, I didn't know what was happening. Um, I lucked across a course on anxiety and depression from an infomercial of all places one of the first things she told she advised was like taking care of the basics um like exercise and eating right so i was like all right uh, i was so miserable i'm an action taker if you tell me that i need to exercise and i haven't done it in a long time and if that's going to help with what's going on with me i'll do it so i got a membership at the ymca and after just a short time i was like maybe this is why i stopped working out because this is boring, mm -hmm. and I know it's good for me, but I need more than this. I need something for my mind. So I started thinking maybe of activities, and I thought, you know what? You know, you did martial arts as a kid. You never did any real martial arts. You know, I did a lot of Wing Chun and other nonsense, but I'm not saying Wing Chun is nonsense, but at the school I went to, it was nonsense. They, there was a lot of talk about, you know, channeling your chi and anyway. I got stories about that. I went to a, 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 you couldn't call it a McDojo because it wasn't that. It was more like, um, it was more like evangelical. <laughs> it, was a, it was a really weird scene. It was more cult-like, you know, than McDojo-like. But anyway, I, but I thought back, I, you know, I, and then I started thinking, okay, what's that thing in the UFC, the grappling? And Rogan kept on mentioning it to me. And, um, it's like, yeah, it's jujitsu, right? So I started researching jujitsu and then I learned that there was gi and no gi. And I just, based on my research, decided I, I think I'm more interested in no gi. Mm -hmm. 
seems like there's less laundry to do. seems more practical for the real world. Uh, it just, it appealed to me. So at this time, I mean, I didn't even realize that it was rare to have a no-gi, a school that was completely no-gi. And uh, so I just typed in no-gi jujitsu Santa Monica or Los Angeles. And uh, up comes this place on La Brea, Legends. So uh, they offer, you know, Eddie Bravo's the jujitsu instructor. So I, I Google Eddie Bravo and I find his Wikipedia page. And I see that he's an advocate for cannabis. And it opened up, it just opened Eddie Bravo's Wikipedia page, my phone, <laughs> for me talking. It's always listening, man. Yeah. And so he was a big advocate of cannabis. I'm like, I, I like this guy. He does no gi. Okay. Oh, Joe Rogan's one of his students. I'm like, oh, man, if I go, this is not only what Joe was talking about. This is the exact place. So I know if I go there, I'm going to know one person. And uh, at that time, the rule at 10th Planet was you had to either have a year of grappling experience or you had to take three private one-on-one -on -one classes with uh, either Brent Littell or Scott Einstein Epstein. Those, both those guys were the highest ranked belts Eddie had at the time, and they were both brown belts. At this point, Eddie had never given anybody a black belt. And so uh, I had never done anything like this, so I did the three private classes uh, I didn't know Scott from Brent. Scott's more my size. <laughs> uh, but Brent uh, is who I went with because that was the first name that was given to me. It was just given two names. And so I, uh, I went and it was uh, me and some other guy doing the same thing I was doing and Brent Littell instructing. And we did the, uh, the first class and it was, I really questioned whether or not it was something I could do after I did that first one. Then I went back the second day, second week. It was like once a week for three weeks. And then uh, it was tough. And then I went back the third time, and the other guy that was, being, that was in the privates with me, he didn't show up. And he was way younger than me, more athletic, showed way more promise than I did, but he wasn't there. And Brent's like, yeah, he didn't show. It's just you and I. And then after that, uh, I was allowed to go to Eddie's class. There was, back then, there was no fundamentals program. It was just Eddie's class. And so uh, you go in, and then now I'm in Eddie Bravo's class, and he would instruct us, and it was like, all right, everybody, let's roll. And people are like, you want to roll? I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And, but you were just thrown to the wolves back then, and uh, luckily people were nice to me about it and uh, helped me, you know, get through it. And that was, yeah, back in 2007. I remember I was, uh, yeah, I guess I was 33 years old so when I started. And um, I found out later, years later, that, at the time I joined 10th Planet, it coincidentally was a time that UFC was just becoming like surging in popularity and that they were getting a lot of people that want, wanting to take classes that they needed a filtering out process because otherwise they were going to just have all kinds of riffraff in there once and like one and done. And it, so that was why you had to have a year of experience. But the three private classes were specifically designed to be kind of brutal, I found like I've had this years, like years later, Brent was like, yeah, they were supposed to be tough. It was supposed to be, do you really, you know, want to be here? And, um, and I fell in love with it and, and it, uh, it began, um, 
you know, it, it was one of the first steps in my recovery process and defeating anxiety and depression. Uh, just my entire life. I mean, I am a, a poster child for a before and after, you know, jujitsu. There are always people are saying jujitsu saved my life or, you know, and, and I read an article once, I forget the reasoning, but it explained why there are so many amazing before and after stories with jujitsu. I forget what the article said. I mean, I could tell, you know, you all the reasons for me, it was, you know, it was engaging my mind and my body and it introduced me to a lifestyle that made the rest of my nights when I wasn't doing jujitsu healthier because I wanted to stay healthier when I wasn't doing jujitsu so that I would feel good. You know, it's like, you don't want to get drunk and be, be hung over and miss jujitsu. So you just don't drink the night before, or you drink, you know, hardly anything or whatever. And then that becomes a habit. And then the people I was around the community, I was suddenly around really good people. Um, instead of, you know, constantly being in, you know, I work in bars and nightclubs. I'm a, you know, we never said it, but I'm a professional stand-up comedian and magician. And, oh, I guess we did say, because I said the comedy store, but forgetting, you know, um, but the point is that's what I do for a living. So when your whole lifestyle is bars, nightclubs, that kind of thing, this is a big change, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it was uh, not the only thing uh, but it was a huge, I'd probably credit jujitsu to a third of my recovery and uh, my openness, uh, the, the network of friends I have. I, mean, it, it's, I could go on, I could wax poetic for hours about all of the things jujitsu has done for me. It's been uh, the, the absolute best thing, one of the best things that's ever happened in my life, for sure. That's you awesome. Know. Yeah, I definitely feel the same way. Um, now, have you had, over the, the course of the 12 or 13 years, how many injuries have you had? Has that been an issue for you? Have you had to learn to train smarter? No, man. So it's been 13 years, and, and I, uh, I got hurt a lot in the beginning. When I was a white belt, I got hurt all the time. And for a, one reason, I think, is because I had not really done anything like this ever and everything would just hurt my body. Like someone would just uh, pass my guard and have me uh, in side control and my rib, it would like snap. And I'd have like a bruised rib where, you know, I couldn't call for sneeze without it being severe. And so like, remember in the movie fight club where it was like people would join and you know, they would be their bodies would be super soft you know they'd be i forget how he puts it he goes but by the, after several weeks in fight club they were you know chiseled they were like tough as nails that, that's what happened it, it, my body everything just got tougher it's like um you know in kung fu when they have those wooden mook dolls where you pound you know you kick yeah. them with your shin and you hit them with your forearms and over time if you've ever you know uh had a, a kick checked by a guy that's kicked a wooden mook doll his whole life it's like concrete so you know I, I got injured a lot and then the other reason I got injured a lot was because I had zero athletic ability and I had never done anything like this so I was hurting myself a lot you know you, you don't know how to move yet and it's like just to do a shoulder roll I had to be taught like dude because I was like I would hurt myself trying to do a shoulder roll because I'd be rolling over my head and my neck 
took somebody to show me to roll over my shoulder. You know what I mean? And it sounds silly to anybody that took gymnastics as a kid, but you know, I was a fat, nerdy kid. Uh, I played baseball. I was a good baseball player, but that's the only thing I ever did that was sort of athletic. And um, so, but I, I wouldn't say as I got better at jujitsu, I'll also say this. Most of the people I ever hurt doing jujitsu when I hurt them was when I was a white belt. You know, it's like you're much safer rolling with purple, brown, and black belts than white belts and blue belts. There's just a way higher sense of control. And by the way, you know, when I'm being, I remember being a blue belt, I got hurt really bad by a white belt because he was just spazzing out. And so even though I was a blue belt, I didn't have the experience yet to settle somebody like that down and control him. And he's just flailing around, punching me in the face, stabbing me in the eye. And it's like, geez, I'm getting my ass kicked because he doesn't mean to. He's apologizing, but he's just flailing and smacking the crap out of me. So um, it's funny, even though I'm 46 now, I, I almost never get injured, knock on wood. Uh, there's, yeah, I'm, I, I've been injury free for years. I, I mean, I'm always sore. Uh, but that's just, I don't know, it's 46. I think everything just is going to hurt, you know? Yep. Um, it's accepted. Yeah. Now, how about COVID? So what has COVID done to your training? Are you able to train at all? Is it, um, has it impacted you like that? Well, since the beginning, I've always known of places. I get direct messages from friends. There's always been a place I have the opportunity to train since mm. it have never stopped. People, you know, are people that do jujitsu are addicted and they're going to find a way. So I was invited to a lot of garages, a lot of places. And in the beginning, I, I took a couple of weeks to assess, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe more than a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. But this is what happened. In my mind, I always believed the idea of the lockdown was to flatten the curve, not to eradicate the virus. So when the curve was flattened, I decided to go back to training because I'm like, well, it was never about it being a risk for somebody healthy like me. It was about not wanting to overwhelm the healthcare system. And it was also about not giving it to your grandparents, but I'm completely isolated. I have, I'm completely alone in my apartment with around nobody. Uh, so I'm not giving it to anybody. <laughs> and so I went back to training. And I was doing that for a while. And then a friend of mine got COVID before the, he got it real early, like in February. Well, you know, a Mickey and yeah, Mickey got it, you know, before everybody was flipping out about it and he ended up, it's been now over six months and he's still not better. Wow. And they, they call these people uh, long haulers and it's these certain people that get COVID and, they don't die, but they're also not getting better. And he's like, yeah, I went back to work, but I get winded going up a flight of stairs. He's still like, and so that scared me because he's young, no pre-existing conditions. I know other people that I got it that shook it off like it was nothing. I know a lot of people say this, but I believe I had it at the end of February, but who knows? I haven't taken any tests. So what happened was because of my friend not, you know, getting over it, our friend, you know him too. Uh, and other people I knew. And then uh, I have a friend that's in, uh, in the healthcare. You know, she's a, a physician assistant, which is like almost like a doctor, right? 
and uh, she thought I was batshit crazy for training. Uh, I had family members mad at me, you know, about it. So I stopped and uh, went back to just sitting in my apartment, um, trying not to hang myself with my brown belt. And uh, so now that's been the case for a long time now. And my plan uh, was to go back, uh, was to go and train with some people last night. The only reason I didn't is because uh, I was too hungover, which was also funny because I don't even really drink much anymore. But that goes to show like the kind of trouble I'm getting into. So um, right now, I feel like the risk is so minimal. The people that I would be training with are people that are only training with each other. It's not like it's a bunch of randos. It's like we have an agreement. Like it's just going to be us and we're all kind of in my boat. So we're keeping it. And uh, some people might disagree with that. Um, I, think I could get talked out of it in the next 20 minutes by you. That, that's, that, you know, that's the thing. I keep oscillating. One moment, I'm like, screw it. I'm going to go train because I need to emotionally and physically. I'm paying too big of a price. Then 20 minutes later, I get talked out of it because I get scared. So I, I never know. I don't know who to believe. I don't know what to believe. And I don't know what the right thing to do is. But when you're talking to me right now, my plan is literally tonight I was going to go and train with some friends. That's cool. And dude, I a hundred percent support it. Um, one reason why I invited you on is because I like how you have an open mind. It seems like, I, I think you do a good job of listening to both sides. Um, Try. That's super important, whether it's COVID or politics or whatever, because uh, the world's fucking crazy right now. And like one thing I embrace is I don't know shit. Like I, I can do That's something. That's what I say. Yeah. I was like, I don't know shit. And I was like, I know you're fucking stupider than me. Not, not you. I'm pointing at no. you. No, but that's no, exactly. That's what I always say. I go, I know I don't know anything, and I know I know more than you. Yeah. Because, and, and you're right. And you know, it's funny. You get in trouble by looking at both sides. People get upset if you won't join a tribe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it, it's crazy. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to train. If it wasn't for, I have my parents and my kids. We had actually put my son back in to training when uh, everything reopened. But then we were just a little bit scared because my my mother-in-law was around and everything else. We're like, ah, that's a lot of people that are there in one building. Uh, but if I was just to go train with a couple of friends, like I think that'd be awesome. Well, uh, being a single bachelor living alone with no exposure to old people, then you don't have any problem with me training. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely not. I think, I think we should all be responsible for ourselves. Like, man, if you want to go smoke something that's, or eat something or whatever, that's going to harm you. Like that's on you. You know, as long as you're not passing it on to someone else or hurting someone else, like, I think we should have, like, we should be able to kill ourselves if we want. Like, it shouldn't be, like, there shouldn't be anything that's, that we're not allowed to do to ourselves. Um, yeah, I mean, and look, this was, you know, when this first happened, it was more about the community, right? Hmm. And, and it's too bad that from day one, they didn't just, maybe, look, maybe it's just the way it unfolded for them too. But it, it's a shame that we couldn't get united to do this. But then also when the curve was flattened to then say, assess the level of risk for your situation and make appropriate decisions because yeah. not everybody's in the same boat. You know, um, I drive on the 405 and I feel like my chances of getting killed in the 405 are way higher than dying of COVID, you know, thousand percent. Um, now let's talk a little bit about your work. So professional comedian and magician, 
Um, let's talk about how that started. Uh, what do one of my favorite shows is uh, Magic for Humans. I don't know if you've watched that on Netflix. You know, uh, I've only seen a little bit of, but uh, Justin Willman is a really good friend of mine. Oh, really? Yeah. Tell, oh, yeah. We've known each other for years. Oh, really? Yeah. Jake and I, my seven-year-old and I watched them all. Uh, we thought they're hilarious. Uh, what about uh, Fool Us with Penn and Teller? Do you, you guys, you and your kids uh, watch that? I haven't that? seen that. No, I haven't checked that out. Oh, my, my brother and my nephews, my brother and his son, they watched that one together. You would love Penn and, Teller, uh, Penn and Teller's Fool Us. That's a great magic show to watch with your kid. Okay, I'll, I'll check that out. Uh, I've seen them live and I've really enjoyed them. Um, but now, so with you, did you have a really early start? Was it magic first? Was it comedy? Did When did you, like, how did that all come about? Yeah, I started doing magic, I mean, from my earliest memories. I've been doing that since I was really little. My brother was a magician, still is. Uh, he's a world-class jazz and blues sax player, but he did magic, like, as a kid and as a teenager. Uh, so I, I grew up, um, you know, I'm the youngest of six kids, and, a lot of musicians, a lot of artist-minded siblings. And so I fell in love with magic, started getting paid to do it uh, as a teenager. And I did it all through college. Uh, I fell in love with stand-up comedy also at my earliest memory. I mean, every form of comedy. I used to listen to the Dr. Demento, uh, Dr. Oh, Demento yeah. radio show. And uh, I just loved anything comedy, movies, uh, stand-up, whatever. And then being a child of the 80s during the big comedy boom and you know the introduction to cable tv uh, i was just watching you know stand-up comedy constantly when i got into college i decided uh to quit magic and to only do stand-up now I, I was brand i hadn't really done stand-up yet i started doing open mics in orlando i went to university of central florida in orlando so i was going to a weekly open mic and uh, as I was approaching graduation, I'm like, I'm going to quit magic and focus all of my attention just on stand-up. And that's what I did. Um, so I was like 21, I believe, the first time I actually tried to do straight stand-up comedy with no magic. Um, and then I got a, an, an internship slash eventually a job slash, lead, the slash eventually got fired from the Howard Stern show. So I, I was working in radio in Orlando, Florida. I, I was the morning show producer there and a DJ. And I got an internship on the Howard Stern Show. And I used that as an excuse to move to New York City to pursue stand-up because you could do like two or three open mics a day there. And uh, Stern started to pay me for certain jobs I was doing. And then one day I streaked the studio and I got fired for that. <laughs> you could check if you go if you go zach waldman howard stern on youtube the, the tv show extra did a thing about me getting fired i was 23 years old and um then i went to work for kenny kramer the real kramer the inspiration for the character on seinfeld he has a tour in new york city called kramer's reality tour the first hours in a theater then he takes he takes you on a bus tour of manhattan with a seinfeld theme and he used to be a stand-up comic, so he's hilarious. He's a great personality, cartoon character of a guy. And he was basically supported me in New York City. All I had to do was help him with his tour. Uh, in the theater portion, I would warm up the audience, try a little of my horrible stand-up that was god-awful, but he let me do it. And then I would introduce him and help him with the tour. And uh, he basically funded my life for, I don't know, probably a year and a half or so. Um, 
and then I moved uh, to Chicago, did the improv thing for a couple of years out there. Just, I'm not, I'm not into acting. I'm not really into improv, but I thought it would, I would, I would, you know, help me as a performer. Mm-hmm. And it was true because there was a lot of access in Chicago that I didn't have in New York. I was getting to do a lot more shows in front of real audiences as opposed to um, other open micers. Right. And so I started to evolve a lot uh, as a performer in Chicago is really st- where I started to grow and finally started getting paid to do stand-up. So it was, it was several years before I ever got paid money to do stand-up where I'd been making money as a magician since I was a kid. And so I probably did stand-up for, I don't know, four or five years before I ever got paid to do it. Um, and then left Chicago and moved out here to Santa Monica where I moved September 1st of 2000. And I've uh, been in the same exact apartment in the same place for 20 years. And then when I moved out here, I was like, oh, the Magic Castle is out here. And for people that don't know, the Magic Castle is a private club in Hollywood. And you're not allowed inside unless you're a magician uh, or unless you're a member or invited by a member. Guys have to wear jackets and ties. It's this old Victorian mansion with several theaters, bars, and a restaurant, a private library only the magicians can access and all kinds of events around magic, like lectures and swap meets. And there's no place in the world like the Magic Castle. And so when I moved out here, I think I was 27. Um, So I decided to get back into magic and uh, focused on corporate events, private parties. And, And that's what I've done all this time. And started to get really successful out here. And uh, everything was, uh, life was perfect. I was living the dream. Um, I was doing, uh, you know, jujitsu. I I had just had a lot of focus in my life where every day, all I did was have to, my, 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 the business I have specializing in corporate events kind of like runs itself now. So all I had to do every day was write jokes, work on magic tricks, and study jujitsu videos and go to jujitsu and my, my comedy, my magic and my jujitsu was all the best it had ever been. My every, it was like all I had left to do in life was try to get to that last pillar of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and achieve self-actualization. I was like, Oh, I'm one step away from enlightenment is how I felt. And then COVID came along. And uh, here I am uh, trying to make a living as a YouTuber now because <laughs> comedy and magic is all completely gone. The Magic Castle isn't going to be open probably for a year. The comedy club's the same thing. And L.A. is still locked down harder than anywhere. So there's yeah. the story. That's what I, w- that's what I was going to ask. So we'll get back into the COVID. But that four to five years where you're not getting paid to do comedy, um, what was going on in your head? Do you have the dream that you're going to be up on a big stage and you're going to be making a lot of money from it eventually? Um, was it hard to hold on to that dream or what, what was going on? Cause a lot of people would give up, you know, they, a lot of people would not last that long. I don't think. So, okay. What happened was I, after Kenny Kramer, I moved to Chicago and I got a day job. So I had a, a full-time job with uh, salary benefits, the whole thing. It was uh, at a small outdoor apparel manufacturer. It was kind of like a small Patagonia. They used to be called Horny Toad Activewear. Uh, They changed their name four or five years ago to Toad & Co. So they're still around. They're in Santa Barbara, but at the time they were in Chicago. 
And uh, that was my day job. I was the customer service manager, uh, which meant I managed myself because I was the whole customer service department. And they were a small company, but um, really good people. And uh, just, it was uh, actually a, uh, a really good, oh God, I'm glad you could hear me this whole time. I realized I had my mic off in one thing, but luckily it's not connected to where I'm talking to you. Jesus. No, yeah, it sounds good. I imagine you would have told me an hour ago, but sorry, I got distracted by it. I was like, ah, oh, how was that off? Um, they were, you know, they're doing great now, but they were a new company at the time. And I was in this improv troupe, uh, and I was also at the Players Workshop at the Second City. And the owner knew that I was pretty much doing my job and, and getting out of there and uh, basically doing the bare minimum in that all of my focus was on stand-up comedy and writing sketches for this troupe I was in and all that. And uh, one day he pulls me into the office because the company really did was struggling. I mean, sometimes your paycheck would bounce, that kind of shit. Mm -hmm. And uh, he pulls me into the office and says, you know, I know one day we're going to be a really successful company. And whomever is here during these days, you know, you're the foundation of it. And I promise if you stick with me that eventually when we are successful, you're going to reap the rewards. I'm not going to forget that your paycheck bounced and uh, that you stuck it out with me. He said, but I need somebody that this is going to be his whole life because we need all of us to put everything in this, to save the company, to be successful, to get where we need to be. And I know that you really want to be a comedian. And this is what I think you need to decide. You should either go all in on that and make that your complete focus so you're not divided between a day job and that. He's like, find, find some flexible work or something, but make that your priority and really go all out. And he's like, and if you do that, I think it'd be great. I'm all for it because I'm an entrepreneur. I want you to follow your dreams. He said, on the other hand, if you're not sure that you want to go all in and, and you want to follow that dream, if it's not a burning passion, if it's not what you see yourself doing, I need you to go all in here. And so I said, all right, I'm going to go all in on comedy. And so uh, I got a job at a company as a, uh, for, they don't exist anymore. It was such an awesome gig. I worked for a company called Chicago Trolley where I gave tours of Chicago. I drove a trolley and had a mic in the other hand, just like you're doing stand-up comedy, but you're driving a trolley. And I made a ton of money. And it was essentially like an open mic every night that I worked because you could do whatever you wanted. You could give a tour or you could just treat it like a bus. People paid to like it was a hop on hop off pass that went around a route so they might get on and that particular trolley driver might not say anything and then stop drop you off at the art, art institute but then the next one is like me who's looking for any excuse to have a captive audience and oh my god i used to that that probably helped me become a, a better comedian than maybe anything i had ever done up to that point and i was making a mint <laughs> and um then when I moved, so I did have a job while I was trying to do these things. Like, you know, when I started, when I quit magic to do stand up at 21, I was working in radio and going to school full time. And then 
when I worked for Stern, I was getting paid some. And then when I worked for Kenny and then I had the day job and then the trolley job. So I always had some kind of, you know, I wasn't just starving. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I got from Chicago to Santa Monica, I, I had a, a temp job for a short period of time. And then, you know, I had already made a good living for many years as a magician uh, growing up. And I just thought, you know, the Magic Castle's out here. This is the short version, but the Magic Castle's out here. I would rather do four kids' birthday parties on a weekend, like two on Saturday and two on Sunday. And you can make a lot of money. By the way, Justin Willman, Magic for Humans. When him and I first became friends, that's what he was primarily doing was kids' birthday parties. But you know what? He was like the best one of the best kids birthday party magicians in town he's always so like you know if you're justin willman 20 years ago specializing in kids birthday parties but you're bringing a show out that's like unbelievable Mm -hmm. guess what moms in beverly hills will give you a grand it's not it's nothing to them a thousand dollars in so that's you know what's great about out here you can get a reputation among certain you know communities and work all the time because you become their guy and uh i did that justin did that and then you know justin evolved and his big break uh was getting to be host of a show uh called cupcake wars uh so justin's had quite uh quite a journey himself but a great guy and but my point is if, if you're a good magician you could make $1,000 a weekend in the afternoons on a Saturday and Sunday doing magic. And I realized that, you know what? The only reason I wouldn't do it, you know, again, I was 27. It's like, what is it, an ego thing? You don't want to be, you don't want to do magic for kids? And I was like, George Carlin did a kid's show. You know, I was like, you know what? I'm out. So that's, I, I had all my dad ship me all my old magic stuff. I, uh, the first time I ever went to the Magic Castle in my life was to audition. So I auditioned. Passed the audition the first time, uh, set up shop. I got a, you know, fictitious business name, you know, a small, you know, a sole proprietorship, put up a website and started marketing and got gigs around town, like steady gigs at restaurants and bars doing magic. So I had some steady income from those started doing corporate events, private parties, and eventually started teaching a class called math and magic, where I would teach little kids how to do magic tricks based on math. And I would, I had two schools a day, Monday through Friday. So I had all of this work that I could do that was totally flexible that left all of my evenings free to go to the comedy store or the improv or whatever. So I started, you know, uh, and that was it. That was it. And then eventually I didn't have to do kids shows anymore. And eventually I didn't do math magic anymore. And then it was almost all really high-end corporate events and private parties. And that, and and then occasionally I would get a theater gig, uh, like I'd be part of a show that was in a theater, uh, or I'd get a spot here or there at the Improv. Uh, I did the San Luis Obispo Comedy Festival, was the last like super cool thing I did right before COVID lockdown, and that was awesome. A lot of great comedians on that, and so. Um, but now, I mean, you know, again, here it, all roads lead to it's all gone. <laughs> I just sat through. Well, it was really good. I went. To, uh, Brian Posehn. He did a uh, stand-up. It was well sit-down um, at his house, and I watched it. It was funny. Um, but you could also, like, he was saying just how uncomfortable it was and how difficult it is to try to do 
you know, comedy to someone that you may not even be looking at. He didn't see anyone on his screen. Um, so are you doing that or like, no, so how no, is, no, how is no. that working? I think these virtual comedy and magic shows are generally awful and generally a waste of time. There's always exceptions. I don't like it. I don't want to do it in the very beginning as a favor to a couple of people. I did a couple of virtual shows and, um, no, my, what I'm doing is I'm trying to make it as a YouTuber. I'm going the YouTube route. I'm trying to do things like if you've ever seen Andrew Schultz or John Oliver does last week tonight, I, I pick one topic and I write a script for it and I try to make it a funny deep dive on one topic. Okay. And uh, then, you know, and I have video clips and pictures mixed in with it. But no, I'm not doing any stand up virtually or any magic virtually. And I'm monetizing it by instead of Patreon, I just have my own paywall. I have my own fan club. Mm -hmm. And what I'm offering in the fan club uh, is magic related, though, because inside after under, um, behind the paywall, uh, I'm teaching super easy magic tricks and bar bets, you know, bar bets like, you know, you're with your pals and some silly bet for a, a drink or something, you know? So I'm teaching and I'm also doing um, some special, like really uncensored casts that things I can't do on YouTube. So um, I'm making short pre-produced videos that hopefully people find funny. Uh, I've had a couple that have done well. I did one about Chris D'Elia and the sexual assault allegations. That video, I got like 22,000 views, which for me is a lot because yeah. At the time it took off, I only had 200 subscribers. I just started. I'm like, all right, I'm going to start this. And um, so it's growing. And so I'm, I'm putting out, I'm also doing live streams Monday through Friday. I go live on YouTube and I basically just react to current events. I'll have four or five news stories. I'll read the story. I'll react. I'll give my opinion. Um, kind of what we were talking about. I try to look at both sides mm -hmm. and try to not look at it. Uh, like I'm a member of a tribe instead of just, you know, instead of looking at it left or right, just seeing what they're trying to say, trying to see all different points of view. And uh, then, you know, hopefully those pre-produced videos and the live streams, people go, hey, I want to support this guy. Uh, so I'm going to go to his little fan page. And then when they get there, there's all kinds of ways they can support me, basically. So, How do people find you? Is it all just go on YouTube and look up Zach Waldman? Is it under there? Do you have your own website, too? Well, it's all on my website. So if you go to ZachWaldman.com, uh, but if you go to ZachWaldman.com slash fans, that's specifically the fan page. That's, that's new. I mean, before there was no fan page on my website. My website was for booking private events and uh, corporate events. So if you go to my homepage, you know, uh, you'd be like, well, but there is on the menu, there's something that says fan club. And that's what I've it's basically a paywall I set up. There's some free things on there too. There's plenty of free content and there's ways people could support me just by subscribing to my YouTube channel is like one of the most valuable things a person could do right now is just find my YouTube channel and subscribe. I, you need a thousand people to monetize it, a thousand subscribers. And I've got like just over 500. So I'm, I'm like halfway there, you know, all right, let, let, let's do it. I know that that's something that I never focused on. Um, and I really should. I, I realize how powerful YouTube can be. Now, let's say things go back to normal. Let's say Magic Castle and everywhere else opens back up. Uh, I know a lot of comedy clubs have actually gone under too. But let's just imagine things go back to normal. 
if it did and your YouTube was doing well and making money, would you just continue to do the YouTube or would you go back to the comedy? I, uh, one of the mistakes I used to make in life was being too scattered and not focused. I told you when things got really good is when I was hyper-focused just on comedy, magic, and jujitsu, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when all this happened, I decided I'm going to go complete. I'm going to use that, what I learned, and be completely focused on doing a YouTube channel. I've been live streaming since 1997. After I got fired from Stern, the very next place I worked was the first full-time internet-only radio station to exist. Back then, Mark Cuban was a nobody, and his audio net was the main competitor of the technology the company I worked for was using. And um, so I've always been a broadcaster slash writer at heart. I love to write, and I love broadcasting. That's why I worked in radio. I wanted to do talk radio. That was the original dream, you know, and then stand-up took over. But um, the point is, I love doing it. I love making YouTube videos. I love going live. I love, you know, I've got some fans. I have people that have signed up. I've had people send me equipment to help me improve the podcast. Like, I can't believe the generosity and the support I've gotten from people. And what I've decided is I'm, I'm not going anywhere because all of these years of trying to make it work, I have tried for many years to be successful uh, either as a caster as a, or as a YouTuber, as a podcaster. And I've never really cracked the code, but I had that one video do well. I'm part of a podcast network. This guy, Maddox, pretty famous dude, Madcast Media. And Maddox is always, you know, he's always encouraging me. It's like, dude, all it takes is one video and everything could be different. So to answer your question, I'm, I've decided I'm not going to quit this. I'm either just never going to be successful at it or I'm going to die trying because I love doing it. And so what I imagine is I realistically, I need a thousand people to join my fan club for me to be able to live off of this. Right. And the pace I'm going at, I think I can do it, but I'm probably a year to a year and a half away from that being a reality. Probably. But I also think I'm a, a minimum a year away from corporate events coming back the way they were. I'm typically hired a year to two years in advance for a corporate event. Those events are huge. These are events with four or 500 people, 1,000 people that are planned way in advance because there's so many logistics and, you know, renting of the, 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 the convention space, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't see that, those events coming back for a long time. Um, I purposely scheduled, I started doing my show at noon in anticipation that my business will return. And when it does, I wanted to be doing this show at a time that wouldn't interfere. So that's why I started doing, I mean, my podcast, sorry. I, you know, I, when I'm doing it at noon, that way I know that if I have a gig that evening, it doesn't interfere. So uh, to answer your question, man, I... If I am going to die trying to be successful at this, and if I am as successful, even if I reach just the goal of a thousand people joining my fan club, uh, I would start to actually become pickier with the other types of gigs I'm doing. I think if I could get to that goal, I would be like, no, I want more of this. I, I don't know. I just, this is always uh, it's just incredibly satisfying. I mean, the dream is 
instead of doing, I mean, I like corporate events are great, but the dream would be to be popular enough on YouTube that I could rent a theater and sell tickets and have my other comedy and magician friends open up for me. Right. That's so that that's the long-term dream. But right now, you know, I can't think about, I try not to think about how everything has been taken and I'm trying not to think about how impossible what I'm doing seems at the moment because it, it, Otherwise, I'll lose my mind. So I'm just trying to stay super present and just grinding. All that's going on in my head is just grinding. Keep doing it. Keep putting out content. Keep trying. Because if I'm not doing that, I don't really have any other options, to be quite honest with you. This is all I've done for uh, over 20 years is stand-up comedy and magic full-time. So uh, almost 20 years on the dot, actually. So it, it's, uh, I don't know. That, 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 that's the, that's the answer. I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> dude, I, I love that approach. I mean, cause dude, that's pretty much my philosophy because I have not broken out. Yet. Like I want to break out. I know I can, I see the trajectory and, but you, you know, see other uh, people do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I know it's possible. I, you know, and it's just figuring out that it's really, it, it is that grind. It's like, okay, no, I have to write today. If I'm going to be successful, I have to write today. I have to write today. I have to write today. So no, I mean, I, I applaud that. It could be super depressing. It could be super hard. This is an incredibly difficult time. Um, so to, to have that attitude where like, no, I'm just going to keep doing it. So that's awesome. And, that, and, and uh, you know, it's not stand up, but I, all I do is crack jokes. I mean, my podcast, I don't do any politics. I don't do any Trump. It's, I purposely am choosing odd news stories and making fun of them and, you know, trying to provide comedic commentary. But I'm trying to really make my play my show a bastion for people that want to get away from that. I'm like, if you want COVID news or politics, there's a billion places to get that from that are better than me. So I'm, you know, I talk about odd news stories, you know, like, you know what I'm talking about, the weird quirky stuff. Uh, I'll read weird Reddit confessions and goof on that and try to imagine what people are thinking. So it's like a different kind of comedy, you know, it's a, uh, when I was in radio, it was a performance. It's just a different kind of performance. It's odd because there's no feedback. But there is feedback because I see the chat and people are, they type in LOL. I'm like, all right, man, I'm doing something, you know, or they're subscribing and they're hitting thumbs up. So it's, at least you don't feel like you're speaking into the ether. You know? you know, by the way, real quick, we were talking about, you know, eventually your other books will be seen. That's a big part of YouTube too. It's like, you have to constantly be making content so that if you do have a video that goes viral, then all of a sudden people go back and check out all the other videos you made. So same thing you're saying with your book, you keep putting out these books. One of them hits the right chord at the right time, goes bonkers. You sell them on Amazon? Uh, yeah, yeah, they're all on Amazon. Some are on other places as well, but I, I have most of my traffic through Amazon. So let's say one of them just goes hog wild on Amazon, then all of a sudden you have thousands of five-star reviews and people go, well, what else did this guy do? Well, all these, this whole backlog is going to give all kinds of you know, stuff for people to, to read. And so, yeah, man, I just, it, it, see, it's not, it's all kind of the same thing, right? Just different. Yeah. Yeah. Different, 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 form, different form of art, but, uh, and that, yeah. that's exactly my thinking. I was like, no, what, just as long as we keep producing good stuff, keep putting good stuff out there. Well, I really do appreciate uh, talking to you, man. This is, uh, is close to, this makes me feel less lonely to see my friends even on Zoom because it's been tough. So thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I, I just wish you the best of luck with everything you're doing, man. Love you. You're the best.
Thanks, Zach. Thank right, you guys. so much for Hopefully coming on, man. And definitely conversation. Forward to getting I know together. I did. I got a lot out of sure. it. I had a lot of fun. All right, man. Have a good day. Um, Later. Now it's story time. We're going with something from Untold Mayhem. Uh, I didn't choose beforehand. I was like, man, do I have any funny stories? I don't really. Although the last one, Last Will and Testament, I kind of wrote that a little tongue-in-cheek. That is my Last Will and Testament. Here it is. Hopefully you guys enjoy it. See you next week. Later. Last Will and Testament Death. It's what I write about. It's what I've been thinking about since I can remember. It's what I wished for the first half of my life. Now that I'm 47, death has become even more real, more of a shadow hanging over my head. I stay relatively healthy and grateful for what I have, always reminding myself I'm lucky to be alive and that nothing's promised. Except death. That motherfucker is guaranteed. Even though I understand death's inevitable, I've never made a will. My wife often points out we should do one, and I always agree, but that's as far as we get. But that's going to change because I've changed my perspective. Death doesn't have to be so depressing. It's just part of our cycle. We come into this world tearing skin, bathed in blood, and welcomed with screams. Why not go out just as gloriously? Over the last year, I've seen some cool stories about people making the most out of death. I applaud them. This is the one time in your life where you are truly the center of attention. Soak that shit up. So, for my last will and testament. First off, I want to get the party started ASAP to keep me looking as fresh as possible. Ideally, I'd like to do the screening a day or two after my demise. Let's book a decent venue, something with a stage. Just please, no Chuck E. Cheese. The stage is important because that's where I'll be. Everyone else down below. Instead of a casket, I'd like to be propped up in a chair. I'm not too picky about what pose I'm in, but make it look natural, hands or we can see them. We'll need a friend who will usher people up one by one to say goodbye. If people are feeling generous and would like to help pay for the funeral arrangements, they can stuff bills and personal checks in my pockets or down my shirt. If they're cheap or claim to only have credit cards, be sure to set up payments through PayPal. It'd also be a good idea to hire a photographer to capture these moments. Package deals and a la carte purchase options should be made available. I suggest giving each person up to three poses with me, and they can do whatever they want with my arms and legs. We can also use the best photos for a Give Me Your Money app to defray costs. Some people in the crowd might not be cool with all this, so let's loosen them up with a little music, starting slow with some classical, but transitioning smoothly to something peppy. That's when the DJ can play my pre-recorded message, asking people to head to the dance floor. This is a time to celebrate, not be pouty and sad. As soon as everyone's on their feet, it's time for the marionette show. I don't expect any fancy dance moves, but I want them making me look alive up there, at least weekend at Bernie's quality. The DJ will invite people to dance with me and offer one last goodbye, but a minimum payment will be required. After all, this funeral ain't cheap. That will wrap up this screening, with everyone in high spirits. At this point, it'd be a huge letdown to simply throw me in a fire or toss me in a hole and let maggots munch through my brain. 
Get me over to the tanners so they can slice off my tattooed back piece and start the curation process, turning it into a cape that will be FedExed to the highest bidder about a week after the funeral. Depending on the cost and time involved, we might as well slice off my other tattoos and see if we can't get something out of them. Maybe a nice headband or two, or sew them together for a belt. From there, I'd like to be stuffed. Maybe have the hole in my back patched up with a slab of fresh skin off someone else. I'm not sure where we'll be technology-wise when I blink out of existence, but I'm guessing we should be able to keep me in relatively good shape for at least a couple days. Last thing I'd want to do is start leaking all over the couch or recliner. Ideally, my family would be able to move me, reposition me, dress me as they see fit. Once I start to spoil or the family grows tired of me, we prepare for one last hurrah. Drones. Yep, they're not just used for killing people in foreign countries. I've seen videos of a guy flying his dead cat, a deer, a cow. So why not me? If the whole stuffing process dries me out too much or makes a mark drone impossible, then I'm fine scrapping the taxidermy because turning me into a drone has top priority. Once they've scraped out my innards and replaced them with electronics, fuel, and explosives, everyone will meet us at the beach. It will be about an hour before sunset, time to start the campfire and tell stories over drinks. When the sun begins its descent, my friends and family get a chance to fly me, one to two minutes each, depending on available sunlight. Once everyone has had a turn, my son can don my tattoo cape and headband or belt and take the helm. All the others will grab bows and arrows. If Jake throws a fit about it not being fair, someone please trade with him and let him take some shots. It might even be nice to let him have the first one. For my final flight, let's blast Iron Maiden's Flight of Icarus, the entire event filmed from above and below in order to share on YouTube. Near the end of the song, everyone lights their arrows and I make my final climb toward the sun. Be sure to bring a lot of arrows in case people are drunk and terrible shots. The song will also loop in case this part drags. Eventually, an arrow will hit, I will burst into flames, and a giant explosion will scatter my pieces over the sea. This is my last will and testament, although I give my family permission to do whatever they see fit. My only rule is that no one take it too seriously. My run will be exactly as long as it needs to be, and I want everyone to know that I'm grateful for every minute of it. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.